What's up, party people? You know one of the worst things about being a self-employed performer? That's right, it's your tax. If you're sick and tired of collecting all your receipts and guessing your way through your tax rebate, well, I know the people that can remove the stress and make it as simple as five, six, seven, eight. That's right, it's Theat Accounts. They're an accounting company that specialize in working with performers. So they know all the things that we can claim back and it's so simple. You upload your invoices and bank statements to their website and they do all the work for you. It's cheap, it's easy, and once you try it, I guarantee you will not regret it. It has changed my tax life. Just email info at theataccounts.co.uk. That's theat, T-H-E-A-T, accounts. So again, that's info at theataccounts.co.uk. Make sure you tell them you're from the Ins and Outs podcast and you'll get some five-star VIP treatment. You will get treated like a king. Honestly, they've changed my life. They've made it so much easier. They've removed the stress from tax and they can do the same for you. Boom. What's up, guys? Recently, I've been working with an incredible company called Quiet Media. Quiet Media create beautiful video reels, vocal reels, self-tapes, music videos, and many, many more. So if you're looking to capture your idea on a video or via audio, then Quiet Media is for you. Go to quietmedia.co.uk or find them on Instagram at quiet underscore media. That's quietmedia.co.uk or at quiet underscore media. Also, don't forget to tell them that you're from the Ins and Outs podcast to receive that special luxury treatment. I promise you, you will not regret investing in this company to help you capture your imagination or your creativity. That's quietmedia.co.uk. Pow. The Ins and Outs podcast with your host, Kane Silver. In this episode of the Ins and Outs podcast, I speak to Rick Chia. I think I said his name right, and I hope I didn't butcher it like I normally butcher everybody's name. Uh, Rick is a bit of a jack of all trades. He started off as a professional dancer, was in a ballet company, did a little bit of musical theater work. He also did TV and film whilst living in LA, some commercial work. And then he made his way back to Canada to work for Cirque du Soleil. He ended up being a talent scout, aka casting director. He he tells us what his kind of job role was and what that means and how he did it. Then we also talk about him being a choreographer for not only dancers, but uh, acrobats, an acrobatic movement. And we spoke about what it's like choreographing and creating with uh, people who have like specialist skills, like jugglers and... uh, you know, people that you'd see in Cirque du Soleil, specialists, specialist acts. Had a great chat with him. He also tells us about his uh, new website, his new company, I guess you could say. It's called Choreography Online. And basically, it's you can pay for to use the rights of someone's choreography. So let's say I upload choreography of my own that I've choreographed to uh, Little Mix. I haven't, but let's just pretend I have. Then you can hire, you or you can pay to use the rights of that choreography for your own show. Uh, so choreographers, you can also upload your own choreography to that too. It's called Choreography Online. I will put all the information for that and his new competition that he is running all in the information of the podcast. I hope you enjoy. 
please get in touch with us at the ins and outs, aka us being me. Let me know who you want to hear from, what things you like about the podcast, won't you don't. I want to interact with you guys and bring you exactly what you need. I hope you're all well. Stay safe. Here is Rick. Cheer. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. I'm very excited to pick your brain. I've heard lots of wonderful things about you. Um, I've done a little bit of research this morning before we speak. Um, and yeah, I'm super excited. Where are you right now? I'm in Montreal, in Canada. Oh, is that where you live? Yeah, that's where I live. What's it like out there at the moment? Right now, it's sunny. Nice and sunny. Although the last seven months, I've been kind of inside the house. Yeah, what's, the, what's, what's it like in the... I guess the civilization over there with uh, the pandemic and stuff. Well, I mean, it's, it's been not too bad considering, I mean, um, compared to the States where we're nowhere as, you know, as, as uh, bad as yeah. the States. LA's feeling the brunt of it, right? Yeah. And, and most of the, the cases in Canada actually are in this province. And uh, we actually started opening up a, uh, three weeks ago, something like that. And now we're kind of closing bars and restaurants again uh, after a surge. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening. Not so much as, yeah, it's kind of happening here too. We kind of open back up because I'm in the UK. We kind of open back up and then like Wales, which is a, I don't know if you know Wales, is a country within the UK. That's, uh, that's just being put on lockdown for three weeks. So they're doing like a three-week pause, different areas of, uh, England are going on a little hiatus to stop people from going out and doing stuff. It's all a bit crazy at the moment. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a year, I have to say. I know, right? It's like 2020's come. The world's not officially ending, but <laughs> something's definitely going strange. I was actually in London when the lockdown happened. Oh, really? Yeah, I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be at Move It. Ah, of course. Literally on my way to Excel. Um, to set up a booth and uh, we got an email saying that the, the whole thing was canceled. So I was, all my classes um, during that week, I had classes and meetings all set up, everything canceled. So yeah, cause that was right at the beginning. That was March, wasn't it? March, I think March, April. I remember I was in rehearsals and um, obviously for people outside of the UK or Europe that don't know what move it is, it's probably the biggest dance convention this UK has ever had. Yeah. Uh, when we saw on Instagram, like move it's cancelled we were all like what like yeah major that's, that, like major. that's when you know it's like the world cup of dance you know what i mean it's like that was a big deal yeah and now excel's a hospital if i understand correctly it's they're using it as a yeah i don't know if it still is i know it was for a bit i'm not sure if it still is but they definitely made use of it such a huge space um enormous yeah it's crazy but no it's been a bit crazy but you know, I'm just grateful that uh, healthy, <laughs> you know, on the grand scheme of things. Um, so a bit about you, Rick, um, if correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of do everything <laughs> like, I, yeah, I kind of do. I kind of do. But um, I, I think I, I, I think I have kind of um, I don't want to say obsessive personality, but it's it's more that I have interest and I've always had an interest in so many different things. And at the same time, you know, coming up from, you know, Asian parents where performance is like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you want to my, you know, you, you, you're expected to be the, the best, whatever you do. Yeah. 
when you like doing everything, then you got that pressure to be the best. And I, and, and I have to, you know, to, in all honesty, most of that pressure actually came from myself. Yeah. It's not fair to say that it really, you know, all of it came from my parents. So, um, so yeah, so every new undertaking that I, that I, that I would do and every new discipline, every new, um, you know, learning experience, it would be all or nothing. Mm. So, because you you kind of got into your position and your career from starting as a dancer, right? Yes. So how how old were you when you started dancing? Because if I'm correct, the first thing you did was tap dance. Yes, the first thing I did was tap, and I was about eight, eight or nine. Uh huh. Um, and uh, it, obviously, it started out as a as a amateur thing. Like, we all start as amateurs, right? Yeah. We all. It's a hobby. Fun. Yeah, a hobby. Every every great dancer or professional dancer all starts as an amateur doing a hobby and um and yeah my first my first time on stage was at nine years old and i did, never left until i retired you know yeah. uh, so so my entire life has been dance of all kinds what what was it if you can remember back to then that captivated you into wanting to keep doing it um, I think it was, uh, well, the tap, I, I just really loved. I mean, it was, it was, it started out, my, my parents used to watch this, um, this, uh, television show with, uh, big bands and all it, it was, it was really big in the States at the time called Lawrence Welk, the Lawrence Welk show. And they had this tap dancer guy who would come on once in a while. And I used to like jump around the room whenever he was on. And my mom said, you want to take tap lessons? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. You know, and I ended up really liking it. And then, um, you know, at some point when I started to get good, my teacher said, well, you should take jazz classes to help you with movement and things like that. So I started taking jazz and tap and I, and I actually hated jazz. I was just, no, <laughs> I just want to do the tap part until one day I was like, you know what? I can't go through life hating half my class. So I'm just going to go all in and try to do my best. And I ended up liking it. And so I became a jazz and tap dancer. And then at some point, teacher said, well, um, you need to take ballet to help your jazz. And so I went into this men's class on Saturday, and it was so hard that I was like, okay, I'm going to master this. You know? How old? How old? Uh, uh, when I started, by that time, by the time I started taking ballet, it was like 14, 15, I think. So I actually started ballet late uh -huh. for a dancer, but um, luckily I was a... I'm a man, so um, you know it's a little less important. Less competition as well. At the yeah, time. But, yeah, for sure, less competition at the time. Nowadays, it's I think it's a little different because mm -hmm. there's so many more men dancing these days. Yeah, um, it's just it's uh it's it's more in the public eye now that men can dance. Back then, I feel like it was kind of frowned upon, right? Well, mainly mainly because of TV. Yeah, at the time, I mean, the number of times I've been asked, you know, what do you do for a living? When I say dancer, they go, oh, no, but I mean, like, what's your real job? Yeah. And explain that. And then when I say, no, really, I'm a dancer, they be like, oh, you're a stripper. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not what I do. <laughs> you know, so it's, um, but nowadays people kind of understand it more. You say you're a professional dancer and they go, oh, okay. okay. Yeah, they, they can relate it to a TV show or a film. Yeah. You know? Well, they always think it's TV now. They still don't know what a dance company is or, or you know, freelance gig, but. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that um, when you were growing up and you got into dance, uh, were your parents supportive about it? They were. I mean, my my parents were supportive of whatever I wanted to do. Um, 
although we were all tennis players and my parents are avid, you know, tennis fans and my brother um, went to the professional circuit. So, um, so yeah, at the same time I was dancing, I was playing tennis and, and they're focused all on tennis. Um, and they did support me, but I, I don't think they really enjoyed it. Like they, they would come to recitals just because it's my recital, you know, but my dad would fall asleep and, um, you know, my mom would be like, well, I only like the fast ones. I don't really like the slow dances. <laughs> they kind of just there by default you know yeah that's the, and besides did you have any other friends which were doing it at the same time or were you kind of like the lone wolf of your because if none well, of your family performed too i i think most of my most of my friends were at the dance studio mm-hmm. like the the ones i really got along with so i grew up with mainly girls i mean mostly because because at school like in school i was never really the popular guy i was kind of like the nerd Mm. you know um i've always been a nerd and uh and nowadays the nerds rule the earth so yeah, it's kind of, indeed yes you know everything's everything's online now and uh-huh. so now to me and going can you help me like oh things have changed since i was a teenager but um but yeah i was i, I wasn't super popular in high school so all my my close friends um uh, with few exceptions were uh either from the dance studio or linked to the dance studio yeah you know? Uh, either that friends of the family what was it like going and doing ballet at the age of 14 being surrounded by like grown men was that quite difficult or intimidating uh it it actually wasn't i mean i think it was smart for them to for my first ballet experience experience to put me in a men's class Mm -hmm. so you don't get the stigma of like oh i'm the only guy and they're all girls Mm -hmm. um they weren't all men though there were a couple younger kids you know but since there were so few men you had like the smaller kids uh you know teens like me and the adults you had like all these different so it was kind of all the levels together mm. um which was okay um but it was never it, it's different men in ballet it's very different you know uh it's it's it, it's like there's like a camaraderie that happens that doesn't happen as much with the women you know yeah. you hear stories about about women being kind of catty and um you know and they're exaggerated of course but it does happen but it's definitely the it's definitely the stigma that we hear that the women and side of things is a bit more it does happen um it's exaggerated a bit you know um it's obviously you don't go in dance studio and it's all just like people stabbing each other's backs that's that's not (laughs) the way it is but 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 with the men it's just different there's a um and I remember also when I eventually went to the Boston Ballet School, anytime we had men's class there, it was just like, you know, um, it's like a football team. You know, you're like, you're cheering, you're yeah. very, very competitive, but it's not a catty competitive. It's more like you're, you want to be the best, but you're also egging your yeah. answers on. So then there's a lot of cheering and a lot of, it's just men's class is awesome. They are. Right? I, I teach at colleges, uh, a college here. And my favorite classes to teach, sorry to the girls ones if you're listening, but my favorite classes to teach are the ones that are boy heavy because the atmosphere in the room is very, you know, everyone's cheering each other on. Like you said, it's like being in a, a locker room before a football match or something. It's like the camaraderie is so different to the girls. It really is. It's a, it's a competitiveness that is just not, um, it, it's not malicious. Yeah, even my experience at auditions, if it's a men's audition, the energy in the room is so different to what the girls say that their energy in their room was like. It is, you know, and they and they have their own ways of connecting, but it's very different the way men do. Men are, are very vocal and very like... O- obvious about it. 
yeah, yeah. I, I quite like that. Uh, at the age of fourteen, you're going into a ballet class with adults because I feel like it gives you something to aspire to be like. You know, it like, does. I, I think I think it's really good because it gives you it gives you role models right away. Yeah, it also shows you that um, you know it's 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 cool. Because mm, I did ballet at sixteen and I despised it, and there was probably three boys in the class, and we were taught by women. Sorry, I should have been off. We were taught by women, and there was no one for me to look up to. You know what I mean? I never, I could never find the cool in it because there was nothing for me to relate it to. Right. You know, and that's a difficult thing for me. So the fact that at fourteen you can see men who maybe you look up to and go, "Wow, look how good they are! I want to be like that." That's something which I feel like probably lacks most places. We had the actual um, dancers from the company there, the men from the company in there, along with kids, you know, little boys, mm. along with, you know, and, you know, people like me. So, um, so I, I actually think it was good, although I know, you know, teaching technique is kind of difficult when you got so many different uh, levels in the room. But in that context, I think it helped because of the, um, it just took away the entire stigma of being a guy in ballet class. Yeah. And our teacher was a woman, but everyone else was a man in that room. So it was, it was comforting, you know, yeah. especially for someone this, you know, first time in ballet. It was, it was comforting in that sense. I think that's great. And then what other styles did you expose yourself to when you were younger? Yeah. So after that, I mean, it just, it just snowballed from there. It's snowballed to, um, to uh, modern dance, which, you know, like the jazz in the beginning, I hated. And then, you know, as, as I started to, to realize the different kinds of modern, it wasn't all just, it wasn't all Graham and Cunningham. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, and there was just so many different ways of doing that. Then later on, I, I realized that I ended up becoming a contemporary dancer, right? So, um, and of course, hip hop, you know, hip hop, I, um, I worked in LA, we did everything was like, um, commercial jazz or or or, or um, uh, uh, hip hop hip hop gigs, uh, jazz funk, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, you know. And um, and then I came to Montreal, and and during some of the off times, I actually joined a a little small tango company. Oh, that's cool. Tango, yeah. So um, so yeah, it's just all around, and <clears throat> and as you go along, and I I, I tend to um, like I went to the university studying physics because that was, I, I, I always loved the sciences. So I kind of have that scientific analytic mind, the Cartesian side too, the logical mathematics side as well. So I guess and, you you pick dance apart in a different way than maybe just a, a normal dancer would. Big time, big time. Yeah, and I, and I would just analyze and not just dance, I, I even dance companies, the way they run things, the way they do marketing, the, made, the way they, um, they manage just, you know, budget, you know, and, and, and everything I would like observe, analyze, observe, analyze. And so to this day, I still do that. And the way I teach when I teach is, is very uh, physics oriented, you know, objects. So, so I try to explain to people, not just what they should hopefully be feeling as they're, as they're doing, but I can actually show them physically how the objects move in space and why certain things don't work. Yeah. Um, it, which is an advantage that I think uh, most teachers don't have because they don't have that background. Definitely. And it is, well, it's being able to uh, redirect or, you know, communicate in a different way 
than other people can. So you 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 have more options to deliver the message. Yeah, and I and I think it's um, and I really like it because you know you and I think back on it, and I was like, I'm thinking, well, if my teachers could have just explained things to me in just that very concrete, simple way, you know, because um, I know a lot of teachers they try to use imagery, mm-hmm. and imagery works to a certain extent, but it depends on the you know the person you're talking to and. And, and my, I think my logical side was always like, okay, yeah, but what really are we trying to do? You know, and I would, I, I, and sometimes I feel like I would just never get a straight answer. It was always about, oh, well, you should feel this and feel this. Like, no, really just explain to me, what are we trying? What's the end game here? Yeah. So I think I had to, you know, over the years kind of figure it out myself, you know, by observing and watching and watching what works, what doesn't, what makes sense physically. Mm. Um, and there was actually a book in the, in the 80s called The Physics of Dance. And it was a physics professor who um, also was an avid dance fan and took dance classes himself and, and actually did the, all, the, all the calculations, you know, tourales second and pirouettes, jumps, you know, um, what the position has to be and why. Um, and and I, don't know why, I don't know why it was more popular as a book because I thought it was amazing. But... Um, Maybe because there's just too much mathematics. What was that it. called? The physics of dance. Physics of dance. Okay, it's out. cool. But um, but yeah, it was it was quite amazing. You know that the, you just cal- calculated all the angles and you know where where your body should be in order for it to work. You know. Yeah, that's that's great. So when you you have this background of all these different styles of dance and you're you know intellectual as well, you want to do you can do more than just dance. What made you decide that you wanted to make dance or performing a profession? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure at, at what age I decided I wanted to, but um, I know that it was just. Um, uh, I think it was the way it made me feel, and mm-hmm. and also the fact that I could I could essentially be myself when I was dancing because I was um, pretty introverted, uh, and so. In front of people, I was very shy. You know, I was never really good with approaching girls, and um, so, you know, it was only when I was on stage that I felt kind of safe enough to, be able to just give it all and say what I had to say, so to speak. You know, um, and so why I do you think that is? That on stage you feel like you have that? It's it's weird because it's. It, it's a mix of vulnerability and, and safety. Like you go up there and you, you just feel like this is my space. These people are here to watch me. So I feel safe in some sense, but at the same time, exposing yourself to so many people is vulnerable, Mm. but you're not sitting there face to face. It's not, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, a good mix of distance and vulnerability. Yeah. That was just it just fit my personality better than actually you know being at a party i I used to hate parties you know when i was little you know things are different now but at the time (laughs) (laughs) at the time but the the idea of going to a party was just horrifying you know it was kind of like oh i'll just i'm just gonna get through the evening yeah the ways to do it a few years in this profession and your opinion partying can change quite quickly (laughs) (laughs) when you get to go to the best parties (laughs) It changes very quickly. So how old were you when you started making it a profession? Like when it when it when was your first gig or what was your first gig? 
um, first paid gig was the the ballet company um, at home in my mm-hmm. hometown. And then what so, kind of work 18. does that like? What's the what's a ballet company like for those who had never experienced it? Yeah, so a ballet company is um, most ballet companies operate in a fairly similar way. You know, you start each day with your your training class, um, and then you start rehearsals. Mm-hmm. Um, most ballet companies do do the the typical ballet repertoire, but um, it's been decades um, since ballet companies could only survive on that. They 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 have to have some sort of contemporary repertoire. Yeah, their their audience. You know, nobody wants to see just the classics anymore. And the classics are, it's like classical music, you know, they're set. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different variations on them, but they're they're pretty set. You know, like if you listen to, you know, um, the Magic Flute by Mozart, it's always going to be the Magic Flute. Mm. You know, it doesn't change, you know, and it's great to hear that. But at some point, I think the audience was like, well, we want some new stuff. And that's where the contemporary, so all ballet co- companies have to have contemporary repertoire. Um and so it's pretty much rehearsing all day. Um, the only thing about ballet companies is that often, uh, unless you're in like a really big uh, subsidized ballet company that can afford to take, you know, a two day weekend, most of them work six to seven days a week mm. um, to try to, because they're, you know, especially in North America where everything is private, there's, there's no, um, well, Canada, we, we do have a government support, but in the States, and I grew up in the States, um, there is no government support. There's like one foundation that really gives the major grants. Yeah. You know, that's it. So it's all private donations. So they're, they're always trying to save money. And part of the way of doing that is to really stretch out the work of their dancers as much as possible. Yeah. But as far as getting better in dance, that's actually not ideal. Well, there's no, there's no recovery. There's no recovery. No, it's really crazy. And then on the financial side, what what what's financially like being in a ballet company compared to because you obviously you've experienced lots of other genres of work how does Mm -hmm. it carry out because when people i find that people never explain currency of dance when people go i want to be a professional dancer we always go what you want to do and they'll come up with an answer and they'll go cool and no one ever goes no one ever went to me well if you tried this this is i realistically you can make a living doing this profession or if you Mm -hmm. want to do this maybe not so much what's a ballet company's you know yeah you um all i can say is you have to love it (laughs) (laughs) because i mean as as far as all the artistic the the performing arts disciplines um dance is is um the poorest oh for sure the lowest paid the poorest and um probably ballet and contemporary would be um well, it's hard. It's hard to say. Ballet dancers are are paid um, really poorly. Um, contemporary dancers, it depends, you know, because when you say contemporary nowadays, it means so many so many things. things. You can still do a contemporary TV show. Yeah, and they call that contemporary, which yeah. is kind of on jazz a bit, and um, uh, and then there's contemporary that's just really hardcore contemporary, and then there's contemporary theater, and then you know, mixed yeah. with dance like deviate in, in the uk and stuff which is mm. um and the pay scales are all very different um and also in europe where you do have government subsidy um it's a lot different than in the states where there's none yeah so, so you can live on it but it's 
you know, you're, you're going to be roommates and you're going to need, you know, retiring on it. (laughs) Not really. No, no. It's, I always think it's because it's such a niche target audience that are going to come and watch. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it doesn't sell to the masses, you know, it doesn't sell to the masses, but, but, but partially because, because when you think about it, you, you think about classical music, you know, classical music um, does sell to the masses, mm. you know, because we all the time and, you know, people, you say that, you know, there's this big famous, um, an orchestra is going to do this big famous uh, piece, people will come see, mm. um, but it's not the same in ballet. So, it, so it is partially because of the, um, the media, like the, the actual uh, dance style, mm-hmm. but it is also because of the, the, the ballet, um, mentality and community you know they're 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 notoriously bad with marketing uh the marketing notions and and they they tend to market to people who already love ballet yeah and not you know create strategies to kind of interest people who don't know about ballet to like ballet yeah you know so they they don't they don't gear their their strategies towards building new audiences even though when you talk to them, that's what they're trying to do is build new audiences, but they're catering to people who already, you know, are there. Yeah. I always think like they need to, for me, I never found ballet current, you know, it was always, we were always dancing to old classical songs or old fashioned things. And they never like, it never had a revamp. If that makes any sense. It was, they never went, you know what, let's work with a new R and B artist and try and make ballet fusion or mix with something current. I know they did it in films and stuff to make it a bit cheesy and popular, but it never really took, it never really did what I guess it was meant to do. But there is some of that today. Um, There is some of that today. But what I find is that you're either getting people who who do that and they do some pretty incredible work, but um, once again, they don't know how to market that they don't know how to sell it. So, you actually just have to know about it in order to, to be able to see it. It's not in, in front of the ma- masses. Or they'll do something, um, you know, for like YouTube or something, and, and they're so focused on the production values they're not focused enough on the choreography. So you get this thing, you know, these, these films, and you get, um, you know, it's really beautiful image, and then, you know, they bring in beautiful dancers, and then you look at it and you go, but the choreography is yeah, you know, interesting. So I, I, I think people tended to, to get focused on one aspect or another and they forget that the whole thing has to come together. And, and I think that um, actual really, really, really interesting content is more important than that, you know, 12K vid, you know, video look. Yeah. 12, uh, you know, crappy choreography at 12K is still crappy choreography, but great choreography at um, you know seven twenty is still captivating. Yeah, it right? wins all day. Yeah. So, what other kind of avenues did you go down in your dance career besides the con- the company route? Did you ever do like musicals? I did. A, I did do musical theater a little bit, which is which is um, ironic because musical theater is what I wanted to do when I started doing tap and then jazz. You know, musical theater was the thing that I wanted to do, and I ended up not making a huge career out of musical theater. Um, 
and, uh, and more um, of the other stuff. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did, um, you know, I worked in film and TV in Los Angeles as mm -hmm. well. I did, um, you know, and all of those gigs were pretty much, you know, commercial gigs. Uh, there was, a, there's a small ballet company in, in Los Angeles. It's, it's not, you know, super well known. Mm -hmm. um, and while I was living in, LA, in Los Angeles, I was still doing ballet gigs outside. So I would, you know, pop over to New Orleans or yeah. pop over. Sacramento, Pop Order, some other place. How long were you in LA? I was there three years. Did you enjoy it? Uh, I hate the city. I hate LA. Because LA is Marmite. It's like you love it or you hate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I did hate LA. I hated LA. Um, I don't like the way the industry works. Um, I do love the actual work in film. Mm -hmm. Like I love working in film. I just didn't like the way the industry works and um and oddly enough you know in a city that i hated in a city that's so superficial i did find a lot of really close friends that are still close friends today um some of whom are in the industry but a lot who are not mm -hmm. so it was, it, it was kind of a mix of both you know without those friends i probably would have hated it 100 percent. yeah but the, having a few but you know being surrounded by a few special people made it made it you know yeah, this this for, I lived in LA for three years as well, and there's something about LA for me which had this this buzz that everyone that you meet has something quirky or they have something about them. It's not very often that you met someone you'd be like, "What do you do?" and they're like, uh, "I'm a car salesman," and that's it. You know, like it was never it was always like a I'm a something, and I really found that exciting, but I could never switch off when I was there. I really struggled to detach from the industry. Yeah, because the industry is always on. Yeah. You know, and, and every meeting is a potential contract. And every conversation, because because everyone is a something, every conversation felt like a potential something. Yeah, which is, which is I mean, there, there's that running joke that, you know, whenever two people in, in LA meet, the first thing they, they do is to present their CV. Yeah. You know, always like, oh, hi, how are you doing? Oh, great. I just did a, yeah. you know music video with so-and-so and I just, Oh, how about you? Oh, well, I just got off a film and I'm working on the next, you know, it, and now it, it was never just like, let's just talk, you know, yeah. let's get away from all that and just talk real stuff. It was always about the industry. And at some point it's like, okay. But then it, it's, it's, uh, it's like a catch 22. Cause that's what makes it so beautiful as well. Is that the opportunity is endless. You know, yeah. like one day you you could be just having a Starbucks, and then twenty minutes later you spoke to someone and you've landed a dream 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 job, you know, yeah. via one conversation. And not many places in the world has that ability. So that was the other hand, which kind of swayed me, where it made me go, "It's actually pretty cool." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it there's a there's a cool side of that, the fact that the opportunity is everywhere. But I think what used to frustrate me is that um, that atmosphere also perpetuated a lot of um, people who didn't necessarily have the talent being in very, um, you know, getting, getting some really good gigs, mm -hmm. whereas people who are focused on being good at what they do didn't necessarily get the gigs because they weren't focused on the networking. They were focused on being good. Yeah. You no. Know, so. No, I agree. So then what, what, what got you into doing, working with Cirque? 
at some point, well, I came, I came to Montreal because of a dance company called La 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 Human Steps. Yeah. And I toured with them for, for eight years. And, um, and then, it, it, you know, it just came time to quit, you know, stop dancing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been dancing for like 30, 37 years, something 36 years. How old were you when you retired dancing? I think I was, um, no, at this, at the time it was like 27 years that I had been dancing. Um, and I retired at, I think it was 36, 37. Something That's like a that. good run. It is a very good run. You know, That's the thing is I, I have no complaints. I mean, you know, it was a hard run, but I wouldn't have wanted it to be easy either. You yeah. Know? So, um, yeah, it is a good run for, to perform good. for that long as a dancer, I think is phenomenal. Like, it's different because in musical theater, I guess you can switch to more of like an acting or singing role where it's less physical. But when you're just dancing, you know, you, you're solely a dancer. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was an actor, too. OK. It was but it was less of a focus. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It wasn't it wasn't I didn't dream of having this great acting career. It was just something fun, mm-hmm. you know, that I happened to be to, to be a. Uh, yeah, you know, to be good at, um, but it, but it wasn't like a focus, you know. So, so for me to, um, yeah. So so then I retired, and then um, you know I did start a small production company for um, a nonprofit production company, and then um, through that I actually um, started thinking, well, I need to associate with a, another art, artistic organization, you know, performing arts, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to be. Um, I didn't want to collaborate with a with one that that loses money. Yeah, it's always in the red, and and surf, you know, in Montreal was pretty much it. You know, the yeah, only it's your only option. So, so I actually went through um, an agency, um, the agency that surf uses, and and ended up, you know, on a one week contract doing tour inventory. Uh, and after that one week, um, they said, "Wait, we really need you for another week. Can you stay another week?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." I'll do another week and then they'd come back at the end of the week we, we need you for another couple of weeks can you stay you know so that went on for 11 months do, do tour inventory tour inventory yeah i mean i didn't have to travel well it's it's just excel spreadsheets okay you no know, so the people on tour would just send it because every, every time every time you cross the border you have to go through customs so they have to take inventory mm-hmm. you know before crossing customs you know, and every time, and so they would send us the sheets, and then we would just organize it. It was it was, it was pretty. Uh, I have to say, one of the most boring jobs I've ever had. It's where the nerdy side kicked in. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's where the carryover was. There was a benefit. There was, there was, and I was even helping my colleagues. Like that's you know, there's an easier way to do that. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But um, but yeah, it was a really boring job, and um. So after 11 months, they said, uh, you know, do you, you want a job here? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I got um, on there full time. And then not, not long after, um, actually, uh, very soon after the talent scout job came up, um, I applied for it, um, didn't get it. And then like months later, it came up again, the exact same job. And so this time I applied for it again. But this time I went to the department and I, I knew a couple of people who knew people in the department. And I said, can you just tell them that I'm uh, that I applied? And so they asked HR for my application mm-hmm. and I got the job, you know, and then after I got the job, one of the first things that uh, my supervisor at the time said, she's like, why didn't you apply before? We've been looking for so long. And I said, I did. 
but HR never gave you my CV because HR always looks for um, outside talent. I guess. Well, they look for a diploma. Ah, okay. Dance, you don't really have a diploma, and and um, and there and also not only do they look for a diploma, they look for a Quebec diploma, what they call a a, a DEC, which mm-hmm. is a Diplôme d'études collégiales. But it's a it's a diploma that doesn't exist anywhere else but in Quebec. So of course they didn't have that. He, you know, was raised in the United States. They don't have that. Yeah. And so there was a lot of weed out that was based on okay, you don't have a deck because HR doesn't really know the the they don't know the industry. Yeah. You know, they just kind of do the filter. So they're treating it like any regular job. Like, are you qualified yeah. for the position yeah, via a a merit? Yeah. So that's how I got in. That's how I got the job. Yeah, that's know? crazy. That is nuts because I always go when people go, I haven't got any qualifications. And, you know, people now they, you know, people go to college, uh, performing arts college, and they get a diploma or a BTEC or sometimes a degree. And I always go, but I've never, like, I've got one, but in t- around just over 10 years of being a performer, I've never been asked for it. Like, you know, not, not once have I ever been asked for it. Why would you? Okay. They just go, what's your experience? Show me your resume. I mean, because I, I mean, for a lot of you know um, performing jobs, or or in tech, or especially in technical, like you can learn all this stuff, but it doesn't really resemble the real life. You know what you're really going to yeah. be doing, the kind of knowledge, the practical knowledge, and the actual physical skills. Like a lot of it is just being doing the stuff, yeah. doing it, doing it over and over again, and that you can you you can get to some extent in training but not until you're like working day in day out do you really get a feel for that you know yeah that's crazy so once you landed that role what yeah, was what was the, the role like what what's your job i was a town scout you know so basically what the rest of the industry outside of circ calls a uh, casting director yeah but um oh, they circ- gave they gave you a nicer name yeah, I mean, talent scout, which sounds like sports, you know, it, like outside of sports that no one else. In. I think that sounds better, though, than casting director. It's got more of like a, I don't know, a bit more spice to it. Maybe, mm-hmm. but people don't understand it because people in the industry, they know what a casting director does, but yeah. they don't know what talent scout is. So, so it was, it's just a lot of explanation. And then when people uh, would talk about me or talk about anyone in my, in, in my team, they would always say casting director anyway because they didn't know what a talent scout was. They mm-hmm. didn't remember that. They just remember casting director of what I do. Um, but there's a uh, just a because you had asked me how I got how yeah. I got to doing it, and there's just a continue the whole HR thing. There's actually just a funny anecdote that when I my first day there, um, so they they at the time they had just implemented this new um, HR system online HR system, and that's. The, the, the system I used to apply. So my first day there, they show me my desk and they, you know, give me a computer and they, they, you know, set up my email account and stuff. And I look in my first message in my email account is from the online application system. And it says, we regret to inform you that you were not selected for this job. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> first day on the job. And they're telling me that I didn't get the job. Brilliant. They obviously needed you. <laughs> well, they need, they needed to tweak some stuff in the system for sure yeah indeed so uh as a talent scout or casting director as everyone would know it what what does that actually entail like how do you are you the person that decides where castings take place who you're looking for for the show like what is your role 
on a day-to-day basis? So it's a little, um, it's, it's, like I said, it's, it's mainly, um, the job of a casting director, but if you can think of like a casting that the role of a casting director, but on steroids, uh, in that, that, that Cirque doesn't have, like when you're casting, you're usually casting one project at a time and you're casting, you know, we're, we're creating this show. And so you, they say, these are the roles we want you to cast. But in Cirque, where you have just like numerous, I mean, by the time Cirque closed, we had had um, something like 42 project yeah. castings, all, all running at the same time. And see, the, the, the company creates these shows and they run for like, 10 20 30 years and so each new project is not a, a replacement it's an add-on it's added on and um since they these things are like full-time jobs running constantly you, you've got that turnover so every year you're just casting 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 so the way casting will work is we had this giant database of artists and we would instead of waiting for a casting call to come which would basically be every week you know you would say okay what are all the dance roles we look at our database, how many people do we have that fit all these different roles mm-hmm. and where are we low, you know? And so um, we would just do these general auditions, these big general auditions, and then um, just look at everyone and say, okay, that person fits the role in this, this, this one fits there. And then you would, um, and, and plus we were constantly creating new shows. So you'd say, okay, what, what kind of dancers are interesting and strong enough that a creator could come in and create a new role on them. So you had those the twofold, these are the roles that exist and these are the roles that could possibly exist. So you're kind of second mm-hmm. guessing, guessing something that doesn't exist yet. And then you would keep all these people that you think fit the company, put them on the database, and then you sit there until the casting calls come. So that way we can, you know, when we get a casting call, we can say, okay, instead of saying, okay, we will need like six weeks to organize an audition, you know, decide on a country budget and all that, we can say, give me a couple hours and I'll come back to, you know, with you mm. to a list, which was important because uh, a lot of times these casting calls were really fast and they would need someone, we need someone, you know, on stage in two weeks. Well, it's too late to, organize an audition you know yeah. especially if you need to go to australia or something you know it's it's too late so so that's how we did we did we would do things like ahead of time especially with a show like cirque um because you know there i've i've never seen any inhuman but i've seen a lot of them online um they're a beast like i imagine people get injured a lot you know so i guess finding uh, new people is there's there's always injuries um uh, there there's not as many as you might think um but that's also because there's that whole machine behind it we have like physio you know physiotherapists and you know so they're taking care of they get massages and you know um if you're on tour um the food is included there's a cafeteria there the artist's gonna eat for free um and so they're not gonna just put a whole bunch of junk food they're gonna make sure it's nutritious and all that stuff so so there's a lot of that that's that's put into prevention Mm -hmm. Um, all the training facilities are there. The artists can train and they, there are coaches that can coach them, you know, work with them pretty much daily, yeah. you know? So, so because of that, you don't have as many injuries, um, as you might think. And it's, plus we, you know, we hire professionals who are supposed to in theory know what they're doing. So yeah. it sounds kind of like it's run like a, a football team or a soccer team or, you know, a basketball yeah. team. Like it's got, it's not just the, this is the show. 
it's got layers to prevent stuff to help stuff yeah. you know and not many dance gigs are like that no because they don't have the money yeah partially because they don't have the money and partially because they don't they don't think of it because i think that a lot of the thing about dance is that they don't um they don't think scientifically and mm-hmm. they don't like it, like i always it always amazes me that in this day and age dance training has no link to sports medicine mad I always say, like, even uh, when I see dancers and they be like, oh, I got injured. And I'm like, what do you do to, like, stay fit besides dance? And they'll be like, just dance. And I'm like, no weight training regime. No, like, you know, you're an, you're an athlete. Yeah. They can't take the pain away and they just keep going, you know. And, yeah. and it's, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, more, there's more and more awareness about nutrition and that sort of thing. But it's like, this is 2021. Like, why is it only now that we're starting to be aware about all this other stuff you know yeah it's just really strange you know you look at you look at the athletes that go to the olympics and they're they're constantly focused on on the science and the and the studies and oh like they discovered this new um this new information about how the body uh, you know assimilates movement and, and new movements oh, okay so we're going to modify our training methods to, to to fit with the science Dance doesn't do that. We just do the same thing we've been doing for 500 we've years. We've been doing the same ballet bar since day one. Yeah. yeah, the same thing, same thing, you know? And and when you go to the hip-hop world, it's even worse because they, they, they learn on the street, Yeah, right? They don't even learn the basics of, like, rolling through your feet on a jump so you don't, like... Guess pensions, yeah, <laughs> like nothing. Yeah. And, and when we... Um, just to give you an example of that, when we, when we were creating my, uh, Michael Jackson 1, in uh, uh, Las Vegas, um, my friend was in that. Oh yeah, Mark Calipay. Oh yeah, yeah, Swarf Hat Guy. Yeah, yeah. So they, um, yeah. So they actually, in the, you know, in the, during the creation, they wanted like really strong hip hop dancers, and we got some people from LA and you know all over, you know, from France and from you know all hardcore hip hop. And then during that first year of of operations, you know. Um, the artistic director was really, you know, pulling her hand out because she was, you know, at any given moment, almost half the cast was out on medical, which is really expensive for the company because one, you've got, you know, got to take care of these people physically. Uh, two, when they're out, you got to hire replacements, but you're still paying their salary. So you're actually paying salary twice, mm. um, you know, and not to mention all the time and hours of managing all of those injuries. So, um, Unfortunately, by the end of that, you know, when it was renewal time, the, the artistic director said, I, I, you know, I just want really trained dancers in here. Even if the level of hip hop has to go down, it was like, I just can't, can't do this anymore. It's too expensive. It takes up too much time. Everyone's pulling their hair, hair out and um, too many, and, and it increases risk mm. or risk of the show, risk of other dance, uh, dancers and other artists getting injured because of it. You know, because of constantly changing the people, and you know, so she was like, "I would rather take a cut in the artistic and technical hip hop level, but have dancers that know their bodies." Yeah. So, and you know, we understood that, and it was like, you know, totally understand the decision, but it was just too bad because now you're you're taking the artistic side and and sacrificing it. Yeah, you're dumbing down the product essentially. Yeah, kind of. But it had to be done. But that's something for listeners to think about. If you are like that hip hop guy or that hip hop girl, which doesn't really understand your body and how to prevent injury, 
like there you go there's a job loss <laughs> well i actually wrote a um a hip-hop program four-year hip-hop program for um international performing arts and theater oh yeah half in the uk and um we haven't put it out yet because just putting together a program of study that we wanted to do on video um is 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 quite an expensive endeavor you know so um but but it was all based on it is all based on um education as far as um, how to do stuff and not just, oh, we're going to go in and do cool combinations, mm. but, uh, you know, people slamming their feet into concrete and stuff, you know, it was, is it was based more on, um, there's a technical, uh, learning mm -hmm. so that these people can last. So they know how to do like shows day in, day out. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, like I said, there needs to be a revamp in ballet training, but there needs to be a revamp in hip hop training too. I mean, all of this has to be revamped and, and, and done in accordance to what we know today about the human body. Because mm. basketballers aren't training the same as they did 30 years ago, not even 10 years ago, you know? They aren't. They yeah. aren't. But several years ago, there was a, an article about um, basketball um, or just sports training. They were talking about injuries. And how that the the they were looking at the stresses on the body between ballet dancers and uh, like basketball players and baseball players, and they, and they were noticing that um, when there are injuries, they're saying that the physical um, the physical stress is similar, mm -hmm. but the injuries when there are injuries, they're the same injuries in both, but there are far fewer in ballet than in sports, mm -hmm. and when it does happen, um, like in sports. There were, I think it was, there was a, I forget the percentage, but a lot more in female athletes than in males, whereas in ballet, it was the same, mm. like the amount, the amount of injuries. And they attribute it to the fact that dancers learn how to jump, how to roll through their feet, how to um, prevent because of the way the bar is set up. And um, they interviewed some of these um, big name basketball players. And one of them said, like, no one ever taught me how to jump. They just told me jump high, but no one told me how to do it. And so, like, he didn't know how to land and all that stuff, and, and that's where they get their injury, injuries from. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure it's got to have some correlation to also, as dancers, when we're jumping, we haven't got someone else trying to jump and take us out. Like, so we can actually focus on, you know, on the jump as opposed to going as a basketballer. I'm jumping and someone else is trying to take me out to make sure, you know. I'm sure that's got to correlate to it. Those injuries were not coming from that. Well, in football, in American football, yes, you would get a lot of yeah. impact but in basketball that wasn't it it was just basic technique as to how to jump and yeah. how to land how to, yeah yeah that's interesting and i saw as well that you 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 choreograph uh obviously for dancers but you do it for acrobats too yeah i do acrobatic choreography how does acrobatic choreography work i watched some uh footage of like a show reel that you put online earlier i don't know if it's a new or an old or an old one and it really got me thinking like when you choreograph for say a specialist that isn't a dance style that you're trained in how mm. do you go about choreographing it do you have to have some basic understanding of the repertoire that they have whether it's in a german wheel or on a tightrope or with the i saw a number that you choreograph with these people have like these kind of like skipping ropes yeah the skippers yeah the skippers and you know they're not just people who i imagine learn to skip on the job they look like that's what they do you know it's like a speciality like do you have to have a repertoire of or understand their repertoire before you can create it or do you just go show me what you do 
and then piece it together like a puzzle? Uh, all of the above. Um, I mean, it's going to be. See, I think there's a there's a there's a there's a trap that I think choreographers fall into, saying that um, oh, I have a process. Mm-hmm. This is my process. I'm going to follow my process. But um, you know that old saying that says you know uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again in the same way um, and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. Well. Part of that, um, I mean, that totally applies to everything. It applies to choreography as well. And when you have a set process, you're always going to be producing the same thing. Now, when you're working with athletes and different um, people like that, um, you're you're not only running with into the the fact that they have different vocabulary. They're not dancers, so they have tricks, mm-hmm. and that you have to know what those tricks are. And the only way to learn that is to, to ask them to show it to you. You know, and you have to kind of get an idea of what they can do. But then you have to um, get an idea of what 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 their capacity of learning other kinds of movement outside of their tricks is. Um, and then it's going to be very very different working with say a hand balancer uh, than it would be working with a juggler than working with skippers. And you know, you're you're talking about diff- just completely different mindsets, different ways of looking at what they do and different ways of looking at performance and different ways of working. So to go in there and say, this is the way I work and impose, um, that rarely works. It just doesn't, you know? So the way I worked with the Japanese skippers is completely different than uh, with uh, Alexandra Savina, the uh, hoop juggler on the ground, Mm -hmm. Uh, completely different. And completely different from me working with parkour artists or with um, dancers. So you have to kind of um, feel the way people are comfortable working, which doesn't mean that you don't push them, but um, you have to work within uh, their comprehension. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, this is my way and that's it, because that's just going to fall flat. And even if you do manage to create something, it's going to end up being mediocre at best because you're you're fighting against their nature Mm -hmm. and i think you need to work with their nature so there is so um there are two things the two things that i mentioned one is that your creative process if if you want to do something different then you have to approach it from a different way you can't always use the same process and two you have to take in consideration the people you're working with Mm. and how they work and the discipline you know, so that they're that they're working. So, so yeah, it was really interesting. You know, to to um, to you know, to work with like Alexandra, who comes from Ukraine and um, is expecting you to tell her what to do, mm-hmm. compared to someone like the Japanese people and their um, the Japanese skippers, where they're used to, they just have been together for so long and they have a way of communicating this. Sometimes it's not even ver- verbal, so. I would look at their stuff and I would say, this is what I see. Would it be possible to try this, 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 this? And they say, okay. But then you have to leave them. Like you can't just work it. They don't work that way. They they actually, um, I would see them, they would stand in a circle, arms crossed. And like so, like for a long time, no word. And then someone would say something. And they would go like this. They do that for like maybe 20 minutes. And then they go, okay get up and they do it and you're like yeah <laughs> that's what i wanted yeah 
it's very strange, you know, but I could have never done that with Alexandra. And I could have never done that with the parkour. You see, it's, you have to, I think a, a good choreography has to be adaptive. Yeah, because I feel like as dancers, I always say we're professional guinea pigs, you know, mm -hmm. like we're little test lab rats, but we're really good at it. We just do exactly what we're told, exactly mm -hmm. when we're told. And if we're good, we do it exactly how you want it done. Yeah. Um, and when you're working with people who maybe have a specific skill set that they're not used to working in that way, I always wonder how you get them to, like, for example, if we were doing something and you changed it four times and said, do it again as a dancer, that's that's day to day life for us. Right. When you're dealing with someone who's a specific juggler, you know, and they, they juggle in their way and they've learned on their own and they've never had someone choreograph their routine. If you tell them how to like, you know, this doesn't work, I need you to do it like this. Like it must be really difficult dealing maybe with people because they probably have never had that before. And, you know, as artists, we're, we're quite precious to our craft. Yeah. So um, people go, well, that's not my way of doing it, you know? Yeah, well, circus artists approach things, do things a lot differently, dancers. Um, circus artists um, are used to, you know, spending years and years and years and years working on one number. Yeah, or on one and, trick. Yeah, one trick, one number, and they, they perform that same number for you know, a good portion of their career, sometimes their entire career. Yeah. Yeah, which is very different from a dancer. Um, well, you learn something, you do it, and then you move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And and they, um, and so it takes the, you know, that's that's why they become so amazing too at that one thing, because they're just constantly honing in on like, that same thing day in, day out. And, um, and ultimately, most circus artists are the creators of their own numbers. So they're not used to having someone outside come in and tell them, what to do you know uh, a little you know once again it's cultural you know like i said you know uh, in ukraine russia often the coach will come in and say do this do this do this it, there isn't that same culture of oh could you please try you know that's one of the things that the russian interpreters would tell me like when you go in that don't ask her you just go see like do it mm -hmm. and that's what they're used to and it's not considered impolite that's just the way it is so it's um uh, and then there's other circus art artists where you go in and you and you it, you can can't just go in and say do this do this do this. They want to be part of the conversation, so it's always a collaboration. Mm. So you always kind of create it together. So and and I'm comfortable in all those, you know. And I think you know if you want to if you want to successfully do um, work with all kinds of different different artists and different disciplines, you have to be comfortable changing and working differently with different mm. people. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about your your company. I think it's called Choreography Online. Online. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So Choreography Online is basically the Shutterstock of, uh, of dance choreography. And for those who don't know Shutterstock, it's um, a company that, um, that sells the rights to photography. Mm -hmm. So let's say you, you need a photo for... Um, a poster that you, you know for your show or whatever um, you can go in and buy the rights to use a photo that's in their catalog on your poster um, and there are companies that do that with music too where you can just buy the rights to a tune and then you just put it on your video or, or use it in your show or whatever mm -hmm. and so um, it didn't exist and still you know apart from choreography online it still doesn't exist for dance and uh, it seems to me that 
you know, choreographers, career choreographers, you know, we know how it works. You know, mm. you, you create something, you spend all these months working on something, it gets performed a couple of times and that's it. It's that's, put to bed. And it's put to bed and you have all this stuff that's kind of collecting dust. And I was like, well, okay, it was great for that one show, but there, there might be someone on the other side of the world who would love to do that, that piece, you know, and they're just looking for new choreography to do. You know, all these regional companies are looking, always looking for a repertoire. Um, these competition kids are always looking for a new choreography every year. Um, I said, well, there's all this stuff that's already done. So why don't they just sell the rights and, and allow someone else to do it? And so that's where the idea came from. Just like Shutterstock and just like um, uh, Premium Beat. And, when know. did you start the company? So I started it two years ago, but it didn't come online open to choreographers until uh, May 2019. So mm -hmm. a little bit over a year ago. And, um, and so, yeah, since, it's, since it is, you know, choreographers to dancers or choreographers to companies, the choreographers need to put their stuff into the platform. Um, and we asked them to, to actually teach it too, because if someone's going to buy it. Yeah, they, they need to be able to learn it, <laughs> of course. And um, in order to not have to have the choreographer spend time teaching these people around the world all the time, because then that would not be extra revenue. It would just be a replacement of what you're doing. So the idea was to, to have extra revenue for the choreographer. And so um, if you teach it on video, then um, it's much easier for that. They're happy because they can learn it. And then, you know, it's, and, and you don't spend rehearsal time because in rehearsal time, you got to repeat, 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 repeat. Yeah. Whereas on video, they can just rewind, 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 and you don't have to like do it over and over and over again. Um, and that way, you your all of the your previous pieces can have this new life somewhere else. Yeah, because you know? I I did a TV show uh, about four years ago, maybe five now. It's called Dance, Dance, Dance. I don't know if they have it in the states or in Canada, but uh, basically, it was about they'd get a a local celebrity or a celebrity from that country, and they would come and they'd relearn the choreography for say uh, a Beyonce single ladies. You know, and then the dancers would learn the choreography from single ladies and we'd all recreate the show that Beyonce has performed. And that's the TV platform. And I don't know. I, I don't know how it works. I don't know if they have the rights for that choreography to use it on a TV show, because essentially, although you're taking it from, I guess, Beyonce, because she owns the rights to the, the song and the, she paid for the video to be made. I don't know if they have the rights for the choreographer. And I always was like. So how can we can like rehash this and sell it again, even though it's not ours? Technically, uh, it's illegal to do that. Okay. You know, that's the thing is that uh, uh, copyrights um, governing choreography are the same as for music, as same for, you know, writing books, plays. It's, it's all there. It's just that in dance, we just never think about it. So would I, so say I create this piece of choreography and I go on stage with, uh, little mix uh and then someone else copies my choreography and uses it in their show but if i've not copyrighted it, it do they, they still have the rights you don't have to copywriting is just proof mm -hmm. um the moment that it's created and finished it is under copyright protection mm -hmm. so it's same thing with writing like the minute i write a book it's under copyrighted protection. The reason you registered is to be able to prove it. Because the thing is, if you've written it, you know, and decide, oh, I'm just going to let it sit. And then three years later you go, oh, I'm, 
you know, you, you, you see someone else has published your book because they managed to get a you know, manuscript. And you say, hey, wait a minute, that's my book. How are you going to prove it? Mm. We can't prove it. So that's why um, people register. That's what the copyright offices are for, is to, to prove it. Yeah. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, but there are other ways to do that, what they, they call the poor man's copyright, where you put it in an envelope and you mail it to yourself, <laughs> that there's a stamp on it, yeah. you know, and everything, and then you just don't open it. And you just you, you use that as proof if ever you get into litigation. But, you know, the, the it, it's just that they, you know, buying, paying for rights has, has always been a really complicated process. In music, it's been horribly complicated. And they've they made it so that it's much, much simpler now. Um, I know dance studios, they can just buy like a year license. Mm-hmm. So they, for like ASCAP or whatever, depending on the different um, rights organizations, you can just buy a license to be able to use all their music in your studio. Because technically, when you use it in a dance studio, you have to pay the rights. Yeah, of course. So they made it a little bit easier, um, a little bit more complicated for individual songs, but it's pretty much, you know, when you use music in a performance, you're supposed to buy the rights for that performance and all that stuff. So um, I wanted to do that for choreography, but I wanted to make it much, much simpler than music. You know, the, the way the music industry does it is just so complicated that mm-hmm. people are, would rather just steal it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. But, you know, and um, and same, you know, with choreography. So the, the way we do it is just, uh, you know, you have a bunch of licenses depending on how many performances in a year you want to do. You just pick it and it's a shopping cart like Amazon and that's it. And then yeah. in, in, in regards to the choreography, is there a cap on how many counts of eight the choreography is? Or, you know, well, we, we count it. It's more, it's more a time, you know, we want a minimum of, if possible, a minute and a half because uh, these, these are licenses for performance mm-hmm. you know, and choreography. So it's not about dance classes. Yeah. It's not like the, you know, 16 counts of eight, you know, it's mm-hmm. not the same. Uh, because um, little do people know that that's not even copyrightable because it's not a work. It's not an actual work. Mm-hmm. So all these, um, and nowadays all the, all the people teaching dance classes, they're being, they're calling themselves choreographers now. You, you notice like all dance conventions. They're your they, teacher but they're actually just teaching. Um, and that choreography that, you know, 30 second class choreography that you're doing, it's not copyrightable. It's not considered a work. And so you can't claim, oh, this, you know, someone stole my work. No, 16 counts is not a work. Yeah. You know? So you can't, you can't copyright a movement or an idea. It has to be something that's set. This is a work. It's an artistic work. Then it's protected by copyright. I see. So if I'm a choreographer, how do I submit my choreography to your website, to your company? So you, you, you go to the website and you pick, um, I'm a choreographer. There's a button that says I'm a choreographer and you just open an account and then, um, you fill out a profile, a choreographer profile with your, you know, photos or whatever. Um, but that profile is not visible until, um, you actually add choreography because mm-hmm. we don't want a whole bunch of choreographers with no no work of course um and then you uh, for each choreography you, you there's sections add a choreography you can um, upload your videos it, you know there's a description fill out the fields and you upload uh, the video of someone teaching it 
and then it goes through an evaluation approval process. Mm -hmm. You know, we would just want to make sure that it's, um, you know, minimally professional, that there's no pornography or anything inappropriate in it, you know, because people will do that. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, and then it's, you know, we had a difficulty level. So we've, um, we do add difficulty levels just to make sure that, you know, little kids don't get something that's over, over their head and vice versa, professional yeah. doesn't get something it turns out it's for a five-year-old you know so um yeah so there's there are different ways to to look to to search and um and that's pretty much it and then it gets activated and then you can leave it there as long as you want uh, um it doesn't cost anything you know the, the we only take a percentage if there's a sale mm-hmm. if there's no sale it doesn't cost anything yeah it's free for you to use um in regards to buying the choreography well, how much? What kind of pricing are you talking? Does it is it a drastic measurement of depending on if it's for one show or a hundred shows, or if it's for a? Uh, we we leave that to the choreographers to decide. So there are five main license types, and they're all de- they're all based on the number of times you're going to perform it. So all the licenses are for one year, and so there's a one one performance license, uh, three, six, fifteen, and unlimited, mm-hmm. and the prices differ. So you can decide, well, we just need it for one recital. So we're just going to buy, you know, for one show. Yeah. Then there could be like, oh, well, we, we're going to tour it. You know, we want to use it in our show. And we want to tour it. Um, and we don't know how many shows it's going to be. So we'll just get an unlimited. And that way we're covered for, you know, if we book extra shows, what if we don't have to go back and buy another license? It's all done. That's good for competitions too, because when you don't know, how far you're gonna go yeah or how many dates you got yeah just better just just get a just get an unlimited and then you can enter as many competitions as you want and you know you can be like the winner you know and perform it five times a day if you want you know and there's no problem so um that's how it works and we we let the choreographers kind of um pick their own prices yeah um so it'll vary but we we kind of guide them um we kind of tell them this is what people have said they can afford although we did that before covid so now i'm pretty sure that the answers would be different yes i'm pretty sure and i'm sure people want to charge more now too <laughs> yeah but i actually they should think about charging less because the the idea is that um they're they're not paying you for the work that you did they're just because it's already for- done it's already done so you can just say well um for a one-time license you want to do one performance well i can charge you like 50 to 75 us dollars yeah which is reasonable i mean if you want to use music for one show it's going to be like 300 400 yeah so use that for one dance i think it's pretty reasonable and then it just goes up depending on the number of performances but that's the kind of thing that people can afford um especially post-covid you know and um it it makes it simple easy for them and, and what you want to do is just um make it easy for lots of people around the world by a choreography if you if you make it unreasonable like i had one one choreographer um price his choreography at ten thousand dollars thousand for ten thousand they can actually fly you in to do a new piece yeah probably less yeah i know so i'm like well that doesn't make any sense so i i think choreographers have to be smart you know yeah smart about them and think about you know why do people buy stuff on the internet well because it's less expensive yeah and it's easy and because it's convenient so you have to think of all those things 
you know you want your choreography to be out there then make it reasonable you know you don't want to do the opposite either we had some people go oh ten dollars well ten dollars is not serious yeah so you got to just be reasonable and and um and i actually encourage people to then use their you know choreography pay their their profile page as that should be your your choreography reel mm. choreography reels i um let me just be honest like dance reels and choreography reels i hate because they end up not showing you anything you know they just you have a lot of fast kips and you go oh all you know is that this person has done all these gigs but you don't really know you don't get they, to see the them you don't get to see the actual work so so you end up with, um, yeah, a lot of, especially commercial reels, like everyone's commercial reel looks the same because mm-hmm. you're just doing snippets. So there's no possible way to distinguish one person's work from another. Whereas on, on this, if you have your, you know, your choreographer page and you have all the, the pieces that you have in, in, the, in the database there, there's a 30 second clip of each one. So 30, 35 seconds gives people a better idea of, what a piece looks like yeah for sure of who you are as a choreographer instead of these little like two second clips bing 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 mm. which kind of makes you look the same as everyone else yeah definitely i think it's a great idea i like that you're you know coming up with new concepts or well i guess it's an old concept but used in a new way on a new skill set you know i, I really enjoy that be uh, innovative and it gives us people a chance to learn from maybe people that they wouldn't get the chance to do someone's work you know yeah which was the whole idea you know and i I would love to get some of the you know people like yuri killian on there you know and like just some some you know we have a few we we have like uh ricky jenks and ryan jenkins a few Mm -hmm. people known in the uk and stuff um been in discussion with some some really uh big names no, but it's it's just they're just really slow, you know, <laughs> to actually do it. They're they're all interested. They're all like, yes, I'm into this. I'm going to do it. I want to do it, and it's just slow getting them to actually, yeah, make that step. You know, uh, I, I feel like the course, I guess. And you know what performers are like. No one wants to be the first person to take the leap, you <laughs> know. So I'm sure as soon as someone sees Ricky become really successful from it, then everyone will go, I'll do that. Yeah, but it, yeah. until that moment happens, you know, where we we never like taking the first leap. But it's funny because Ricky was has been interested since since the beginning. He's a smart human. <laughs> too, but he was too busy. He was too busy. You know, busy, busy. You was like, oh, are you going to do this? Yes, I'm going to do it. I'm just too busy. Until at some point, he saw his choreography online performed like step for step by another company. And he was like, that's, that's not right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I sat down with him and I finally booked him in London. I came, went to London. I said, listen, go in studio and I will film it for you. And uh, I think that, you know, the, I got the impression that that was kind of the, the event that said, okay, I'm going to do this. Because seeing your, someone actually took your choreography did it step, performed it step for step, you know, and performed it on a big stage. You're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> What's just happened here? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, what do you see for your future? Is there anything that you'd like to try and I guess, venture out and do something new? Oh gosh. 
the the it's it's limitless it's endless you know i mean i right now uh, choreography online is producing dance competitions like online dance competitions oh that's cool uh, yeah we we did our first one back back in may um international online dance competition and um it was it was, it was really something because we we had over 30 uh, representatives from over 30 different countries participate and um and then when we put the finalists on the gallery we had like right away but um and it was it was open to public voting for three weeks i think three mm-hmm. weeks uh, one hundred and ten thousand um people Pretty. uh 600 um almost six hundred thousand video views so it, it got really popular so all these people were like um these competitors they were seen by all these people you know and shared by all these people so it was it was really quite quite something and so right now we're doing another one called IEDC challenger international online dance competition when is that challenger it's it's going on right now um and it's uh <clears throat> we have three choreographers from three different countries with three different dance styles and um you actually um get a license for a solo that they've picked of their choreography um, on a chore- on the choreography online website, and that includes the entry fee. And then you learn it, you perform it, and then you submit their choreography. And so the judge is the choreographer. Oh, nice! Basically, they're challenging you to do their piece, and and it was inspired by a competition in South Korea that does the same thing. Um, and uh, it's really, really inspiring to watch um, how different people interpret the same piece. Yeah, and it was really cool. So that's kind of where the inspiration came from. And so we have three: we have Ryan Jenkins, who's doing the contemporary part; uh, Stephen Tanos from uh, uh, Australia, who, who's got a jazz funk piece in there; and then Khaled Freeman, which is stepping. Okay, it's pretty cool. So, um, you know, it's. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Like, oh, that's wait. dope. I'm going to, I'll check it out and I'll make sure I, uh, if when we leave this, if you send me all the links to everything, then I'll put it all in the, the, the information of the, bo- the podcast. Yes, absolutely. Dude, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to pick your brain and nice to meet you virtually. I wish we could have done it in person, but COVID's ruining everything. <laughs> when when we got a vaccine then i'll be back i'll be back in, in the uk definitely we'll meet up and we'll have a good catch up that'd be awesome thank you very much for your time man stay safe and uh, i hope to see you in the future thanks cheers buddy thanks man thank you for listening to the internet's podcast please leave us a five-star rating and review on itunes and share the podcast with your friends and family one love peace the internet's podcast with your host kane Silver.